Welcome. So glad to have you here this morning. Just make sure that you take take and pay some attention to your bulletins this morning. We've got Operation Christmas Child information in there and some stuff back in the entryway that you can use to, and I see some boxes out there actually in the pews, so some people are already picking them up. That's good. So Operation Christmas Child. Also, um, at the very bottom of the announcement page is information about the Footsteps of Paul trip that we're planning for 2016, uh, late September, early October. There's information back on a table uh, just by the door there for those of you who might be interested in that as well. Um, so just read through those announcements. Also, most of you know this, hopefully, uh, after service today, we're going to have a fellowship dinner over at Webster Hall. So if you did not... Um, bring any food, please feel free to come and enjoy fellowship with us. Also, I think one thing I did forget to mention in the bulletin, church survey. Uh, all different colors this week. Last week they were all green. This week they're all different colors. But please complete the church survey. It shouldn't take more than a few minutes. Um, there's a basket back on the coffee bar for you to drop those surveys off. After you've completed them, we very much appreciate your input into uh, things we're doing here at Community Church. God bless you. It is so good to be here in God's house. Not that this is his house. I mean, as he told Solomon, heaven and earth can not contain me, how much less the house you have built me. But when I'm speaking of his house, I'm talking about you, his people. Living stones, the Bible says, that have been built up into a dwelling place for God, each one of you. That's important to remember, that we have the Holy Spirit within each of us, and God is building up our lives, uh, and that's where he dwells. So, with that said, I want to turn to John chapter 6. We are going to study John chapter 6. There are 71 verses in John chapter 6, so actually we're not going to have our fellowship dinner until about 5 o'clock tonight. No, uh, I, I promise that we won't, we won't take that long. In fact, uh, the beginning half of the chapter deal with the fourth and fifth signs. Now, just by way of reminder, John writes about in the first 12 chapters of his gospel seven different signs that Jesus performed, miracles that he did that revealed who he was, that he was not just another prophet there in Israel, but that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And that's what John wrote for, remember, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, I have written these things to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John is very purposeful. He intends to talk to us about things that Jesus did that reveal to us who he was. Now, these seven signs are not the totality of the miracles of Jesus. John actually, uh, as he concludes his gospel, says that he supposes that even if all the books in the world were, were collected together, they would not be enough to talk about what Jesus had done. So this is not the totality, but it is intended to focus our eyes upon Jesus Christ and to help us to understand who he is. He's, he's a figure in history to start off with. 
Jesus' existence upon this planet is very well attested to. In fact, this book, the Bible, is the most authenticated book of all of ancient literature. The most authenticated book next to the Bible is Homer's Iliad. There are about 600 manuscripts that exist of Homer's Iliad. And most of those manuscripts that exist of Homer's Iliad are about six to 700 years after Homer's life on earth. That's the closest to the Bible. The Bible, the New Testament, has over 24,000 existing manuscripts. Most of those manuscripts written within one to 200 years of the events that occurred. So it's not even close. The Bible is very well attested to. In fact, the entire New Testament can be recreated just out of the writings of the ancient church fathers who wrote in the 2nd and 3rd century. So this book is solid. This book tells us information that we need to know about the world around us physically, but more importantly, the world around us spiritually, the things that we cannot see. You guys are all looking up here at me right now. You can see me. If you were to come up here, you could touch me. But the reality is, as I have pointed out many times, that surrounding us in this room right now in the spiritual realm are angels that we cannot see. Spiritual beings that God has sent to minister to us, to serve us, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. There's a spiritual battle that's going on. And we are in the midst of that spiritual battle. Warfare that is being waged in the heavenly places. It says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. So, the fourth and fifth sign are included in the first part of John chapter 6. Jesus feeding the 5,000, a miracle that is included in all four of the Gospels, and then Jesus walking on the water. And Jesus feeding the 5,000, Kathy Pryor came up to me right before the teaching time and shared something with me that the Lord had, had shown her, and I think it is a beautiful thing and I want to share it with you. She said as she was reading there in verse 13 about all of the disciples gathering the remains of the fish and the loaves and filling 12 baskets. Now remember, they just started with a few loaves and a few fish. And there's 5,000 men, probably double that, at least women and children also there. That after feeding that multitude, there are 12 baskets, broken pieces that they had remaining, that they filled these baskets with. And Kathy shared with me that the term there the pieces of the five barley loaves left over literally means broken. And she said the Lord was just speaking to her about how he takes the brokenness of our lives and he captures it and he places it in a basket to be used. Nothing to be wasted. All of it purposeful. So you think your life is broken. You think that things have happened to you that are going on perhaps even now in your life that are out of your control. What does it all mean? 
How is it ever going to be purpose in my life with regards to these things that are going on? And the reality is, he's picking up those broken pieces and he's putting them in a basket. And he's going to use them. Your life has meaning and has purpose. Of course, Jesus walking on the water, I mean, who could walk upon the water except for the Son of God? Someone empowered by God to do that. And so two very miraculous occurrences. But what I want to focus in on this morning, and the title of the message this morning, is the bread of life. And really, the, the occurrence that happened after these two signs and the meaning, really, behind specifically the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to start in verse 25. Jesus, after the feeding of the 5,000, has walked across the lake. He's now somewhere in the region of Capernaum. The, the miracle took place farther into uh, the reaches of Bethsaida, probably about five or six miles across the lake. Jesus had walked across the lake and is over by Capernaum now. And all of the people who had been over there by, by Bethsaida, uh, when they woke up the next day, they were looking for Jesus because they thought they had found something pretty good, someone who could feed them and take and make everything easier in their lives. And so they wanted to find him. Where is this guy? Couldn't find him. So they followed after him over to Capernaum in search of him. And in verse 25, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Because Jesus, they knew that there was only one boat that had been left over there. And they, they realized that he, he did not leave on that boat with his disciples, so they were wondering, when did you get here? But Jesus begins to give them a, an exposition of his miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. He addresses them because they are approaching him. They are following after him with the wrong motives. As I said, they thought they had found a good thing, someone who could feed them, someone who could take care of their daily needs, perhaps even someone who could lead them as a general against the Roman conquerors. So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So he points out what their real purpose in seeking him out is. And he says to them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So Jesus points out to them the futility in an ultimate sense of pursuing things that are going to perish. Pursuing natural food. We take it in, it goes through us, and we release it. Natural food ultimately corrupts, perishes. We will need a next meal and a next meal and a next meal. Jesus is saying, don't labor for the things that spoil, the things that perish, the things that do not have eternal meaning. And, and I see this all around us in our culture today. The incredible amount of energy and time and resources that our culture uses to pursue things that spoil, that perish. <laughs> I was watching some college football yesterday. Um, 
laying on my couch watching it, and they were talking about uh, the Alabama-LSU game three years ago that had been the game of the century. But now there was a new game of the century this year. And that's how it is. That's how it is with the things that spoil. Boy, the, the, the Super Bowl this year is going to be tremendous. It's going to be the, the ultimate game ever until next year. It spoils. There's no eternal import to it. And we put so much of our resources, so much of our energy into things that spoil. Things that do not have an ultimate reality. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here to them. He says, you should labor then for the food that endures to eternal life. So they ask him a question. What must we do to do the work God requires? So, okay, Jesus, how then do we do what we're supposed to do? How do we pursue that eternal activity? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. To believe in the one he has sent. Verse 29. So, everything that has to do with eternity, all things that will last beyond this life, are centered in Jesus Christ and faith in him. If you want to have an eternal existence with God, then it is going to occur through faith in Jesus Christ. All the things that are going to last in your life, the things that you do that will have meaning beyond this life are centered in Jesus Christ. So in verse 30, they ask him, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, mind you, he had just fed 10,000 people with a few loaves and a few fishes the day before. But they're still looking for something more. And there's a reason why they're looking for something more. They say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, we all know the story about how Moses uh, told the people that God would send manna, a wafer-like substance from heaven each morning, and then they would gather it up and they would be able to eat it. The rabbis taught that when the prophet who was to come that Moses spoke of there in Deuteronomy 18 the prophet who was to come, when he came, he would bring a new manna to the people. And then that new manna would usher in the Messianic age. So these people are just following the teachings of the rabbis. They're saying, okay, if you're the prophet, and they had said back when he uh, fed the 5,000, they said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They're saying, okay, if you're the prophet, then bring down the new manna. If you're the Messiah... Bring in the new manna that will feed us evermore. So they're asking a question based upon what they have been taught. It, it, there is a sense of hardness of heart here. And in fact, in Mark chapter 6, verse 52, it says that the disciples even, the 12, did not understand the feeding of the 5,000 because of the hardness of their hearts. And that is one of the things we as humans are prone to. We're prone to hardening our hearts against the things of the Spirit. But these people are asking a question and saying, okay, our, our rabbis teach us that the prophet will bring new manna from heaven. 
You're the new, if you're the prophet, then bring this new manna. And Jesus answers them. He says, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven. It is my Father who gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus begins a conversation here with them where he's trying to draw them into an understanding of who he is. He's not just another prophet. And he wants them to understand this. And he's making the connection with the rabbinical teaching that they have received and pointing it to him. And so when Jesus says this, they say to him, Sir, always give us this bread. Give us this bread from heaven. Much like the woman at the well when we we read about her in John chapter 4, how she said when Jesus told her of the living water, give me this water always. She was thinking materially. These people also are thinking materially. They're thinking, if God is going to send us bread from heaven, and if you indeed are the Messiah, and that manna is going to come, give us this bread forever. And Jesus declares to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. So Jesus begins to talk to them about the calling of God, the will of God, and the message of God here in this passage. And it's intense. It's so intense that we will see that many of his disciples walked away from him. First, the calling of God. Verse 37, all those that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And then later, in verse 44, it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. So there is the call of God that goes out to the world. God calling people to himself, as these two scriptures say. Through his son. Now, the call of God, what is that? It says in 1 Timothy that God desires that no man should perish spiritually, but that all would come to him and have eternal life. So, in that respect, God is calling to every human being. There is a message that is going forth. Originally, it went forth through the nation of Israel and the law of God. But ultimately, it came through Jesus Christ. And God's call to you today. You're here this morning because you heard God's call. I don't know how you heard God's call. Maybe it was a friend who was sharing with you. Maybe it was something you read in a book. Maybe it was just a sense of need that you had. That there was something more. But there are a lot of people who don't respond to God's call. Thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of people who harden their heart to the voice of God. The psalmist said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts against the Lord. So the Father draws us to the Son. 
And we cannot come to the Son unless the Father draws us. But the reality is, is that the Father is speaking. He's communicating to this world through His Son. So the call of God, and the call of God is to bring us into the will of God. Look at verse 40. It says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I, Jesus says, will raise them up on the last day. So that is the will of God. The call of God is to draw people into the will of God, which is that none should perish, that they should look to the Son, believe in Him, and have eternal life. There is a life beyond this life. You are a spiritual being. Now, as we grow older, these bodies begin to decay, fall apart. Things happen to us. We make noises that we didn't used to make. These bodies are going to die. They are going to perish. But that does not mean that your life is over. The Bible teaches that there is an eternal life, a life that exists beyond death. Paul said, for me to die, or excuse me, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because for me, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is a life that goes beyond this. So the will of God, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? It's that you look to Jesus Christ, believe in Him, and trust Him. And he will raise you up on the last day. And then God, it says here, teaches us about eternal life, about himself. Verse 44. No, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. So God calls us into his will. He shows us his will and he expands upon his will as we learn from Him. I was having coffee with someone this week and they were sharing with me how God was beginning to illuminate the Scriptures for them. And I thought, what a great testimony to this verse. Because it is the Spirit that teaches us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. John says, you have No need that any man teach you because it is the Holy Spirit within you that teaches you. That is the drawing of God. So we are drawn into the will of God to be taught the message of God. And the message of God is simply this. Verse 47, this is in a very simple phrase, the totality of God's intention for us. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Very simple. So the Jews are having a hard time with this. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 52. And Jesus ups the ante. He says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. 
Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So this was hard for the Jews to hear. The idea of cannibalism, of drinking blood to the Jews was repugnant. I mean, they could not even eat animals unless the blood had been entirely drained from the flesh. So when Jesus is speaking in this very uh, stark language, they are stunned. And on hearing it, verse 60, many of his disciples say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And there's one commentator who translates verse 60 into this. This is stupid. Why are we even listening to this? And that's probably really closer to what the intent of what they were saying was. Are you kidding me? This guy's saying we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's beyond the pale. That's ridiculous. Why are we even paying attention to him? And of course, Jesus had a deeper meaning to these words. He was aware that the disciples were grumbling, and he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and full of life. So he is speaking figuratively about our need to consume his flesh, that is, his body upon the cross of Calvary. And to drink his blood, that is, to recognize that without the cleansing of his blood, that is, his blood taking upon itself the 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 accountability and the full responsibility for our sins, that we don't have life in ourselves. That's what he's talking about. He was not talking about them taking a fork and knife and sitting down to eat him. He was talking about spiritual life, a belief in the gospel, a belief in the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Son of God. That unless we believe and what He has done on our behalf, that He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Unless we take that in, just as we take in natural bread, we don't have life in ourselves. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are hard to hear. Difficult things for us to grasp and understand and accept. You read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and there's a lot of tough stuff in there. It says, does your eye offend you? Pluck it out. Does your right hand cause you to stumble? Cut it off. Dealing in a very harsh way with sin. Don't let sin overtake your life, Jesus was saying. Jesus told us that we're to love Him more than we love our father, our mother, our son, our daughter. That we are to have a greater love for God than those members of our own family. A lot of tough stuff the Bible has. God told the Israelites, wipe out the Canaanites. Kill every last one of them. Don't leave any of them in the land. Revelation chapter 16. God pours out His wrath in seven great bowls, it tells us. And if you read Revelation 16, it's disturbing. It's intense. 
and you read through it, and you might be like the disciples who, are, who begin to grumble. Is this really God? And so my question to you, and it's a question I've wrestled with many, many times, is which Jesus do you believe in? When you say, well, gee, isn't there only one Jesus? No, that's not necessarily so. Paul said that there were Judaizers who were following him as he proclaimed the gospel who were preaching another Jesus, a different Jesus. So there are a few Jesuses out there. My question to you is which Jesus do you believe in? The Jesus of this book who has hard sayings, difficult things to understand, to take in, and to live by? Or do you believe in the Jesus that the world has created? Jesus, meek and mild, sort of a social worker who's always out there helping people, doing nice things for them. It's a challenge for each of us as Christians to understand who Jesus really is and what he has really said and what his message to us really means. So the people leave. A lot of them turn back, no longer follow him. And Jesus asked his disciples, he said, do you want to leave too? Now here's the key. When you come across a difficult portion of Scripture, something that really, really challenges you, and you're like, what? Did I just read that? Did Jesus really just say that? Herein is the key to remaining his disciples. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Peter points out the first point. You have to recognize where truth lies. Where does truth come from? Peter understood. Jesus had it. The truth came from Jesus Christ. We'll read later when we get to John 14 that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So Peter recognized that Jesus was the guardian and dispenser of truth. So we need to recognize that truth, that also, that Jesus is the guardian and dispenser of truth. Secondly, Peter says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So it's not just a recognition of where truth lies. It's not just an understanding that this book reveals the truth, the person who is the truth and who gives us the truth, but it's a personal application, a personal investment in Jesus and a belief that he's the one. There is no other. There is no other source of truth that is going to bring you eternal life other than Jesus Christ, and you must enter into relationship with him. And I know, and I thank God that most everyone here this morning has done exactly that. You're in a living, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And you understand that even when you come across the hard things, that you have no other place to go to because Jesus is the source and the dispenser of truth. So he's the bread of life. And the bread of life is a great analogy, and we'll finish with this. Bread, in a natural sense, is a seed that you plant in the ground. It grows until it's mature. 
and then it's harvested, and, and the grains are taken. They are, they're plucked out of the, the, the plant, and they are roasted in a fire, and they are crushed into a flour, and then they are baked into a bread that we can then consume. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In a very, very real way, he follows that pattern of, of the natural bread. He was planted as a seed in the womb of Mary. Born, and it says in Luke chapter 2, grew in respect to God and to men. And he became a man, a full-grown man who was cut off by his betrayal from Judas and the Jews. He was crushed and broken into a powder by the work of the Romans. He was roasted in the fire of God's judgment there on the cross when he became sin for us. But he is now risen from the dead, the very bread that we must take in in order to have eternal life. Man does not live, the Bible says, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your word, the refreshment that it provides for us. And my prayer, Lord, here this morning is that each one of us would commit to the truth and to a walk with you that is based on love. Because unless we love the truth, unless we love you, those hard things, those hard scriptures, those difficult times are going to be very tempting for us to walk away from you and to leave you. So pour out in us, Lord, a faith in your word, a love for truth, and a belief, Lord, in you as the only source of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.